0: The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out PodcastApps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's PodcastApps.com. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones.
1: Join us now for an open and educational conversation with Claire Webster, founder and president of Caregiver Crosswalk, a consulting firm providing education and support services to help navigate the journey of Alzheimer's disease and dementia related illnesses. We're so grateful to have her with us today. Thanks so much for joining us, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us on the We Are LCC podcast. We have Claire Webster with us today, and I would like to start by asking, how did you become the founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program?
2: Well, that's quite an interesting story. I mean, I think, first of all, if anybody ever said to me that I would become a dementia care consultant and educator about 30 years ago, I would say, like, what? <laughs> um, so it's it's really my my journey that has led me here. I was uh, a caregiver to my mother, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease uh, in 2006, and I was 38 years old. I had three young children, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a nine-year-old, and my father had died the year before, and just before he passed away, he had been telling me that my mother had been behaving quite oddly, no changes really in memory, but really just behaving quite oddly. and. You know, my mom was Finnish and Finns tend to be a little kooky. So, you know, I was used to my mom being a bit quirky. And, you know, she was uh, actually a a caregiver to uh, my father uh, my entire life. Um, I'm an only child. So I was witnessing, uh, you know, the, the burdens of caregiving that was placed on her. And so when he had been telling me that there were, you know, changes happening in her behavior, I just kept discounting it as just pure caregiver stress. As time went on, it was clear that, uh, you know, that it was something more happening after my father had passed away. Her behavior was changing even more significantly. And I really did not know even what type of doctor to take her to see. You know, at this point, it's which many families go through like, should we see a psychologist? Should we see a family doctor? I didn't really know the path. Yeah.
1: How old was she at the time?
2: At the time, she was uh, just about to be 74.
1: Okay, so she was young.
2: She was still younger, you know, and she was very physically active and, and, you know, really, except for the significant changes in her behavior, you know, she looked fine, which is hard for a lot of families because the person still looks good on the outside. What really led me on this path was uh, eventually we went to see a neurologist. And I was not prepared for the medical appointment. I didn't know anything about dementia, Alzheimer's disease, any of that. And basically, you know, she had had two minor car accidents uh, prior to going to the appointment months leading up. I didn't know what questions to ask. Basically, you know, the doctor was asking me, like, we performed the MOCA, which is the mini mental test where they, t- they asked you to draw and they, they try to check your, your cognitive, your, your intellectual function, which she failed. And then he said to me, is she still driving? And I said, well, of course she's still driving. And without warning, he picked up the phone and canceled her license on the spot without warning.
1: And she was sitting right there. She must've been shocked. She was
2: sitting right there. She was shocked. She was furious. I was in complete shock. And then I said to him, well, like now what? Because because the words were then, your mother has Alzheimer's disease, not giving us an explanation of what it was. And it was like, so I looked at him and I said, well, now what? And the words that he said to us were, good luck, Mrs. Webster. That was the prescription of care that we got was good luck, Mrs. Webster. That was it. There was no, okay, here are the next steps. I mean, imagine getting diagnosed with heart disease or cancer or anything like, and somebody says, good luck. And it was because of those three words that propelled me on the path that I am today. Because as a result of not being properly educated, of not getting the support, it did have a significant impact on the quality of care that she did not receive it had an impact on the stress that it put on my life it had an impact on my family so the ripple effect was huge just because of that lack of education that i was not provided with so what happened was throughout the next few years like many people i was just going through this journey really blindsided (laughs) just winging it along the way you know i had my three kids i was still i was working in another field And eventually I suffered from a very significant uh, burnout, which happens quite frequently to caregivers. And upon my journey of healing, I became very involved in a grassroots organization in Montreal called uh, AGI Alzheimer Group, for which I became eventually president of the board. But during that time, you know, I would meet a lot of people who were go- starting the journey with their own families. And they would say to me, you know, Claire, like, can I talk to you? Can I have coffee with you? What advice would you give? And I would the first question I would ask all of them was, okay, what information were you provided by the doctor? And everybody was coming back to me saying nothing. They were being told, we'll see you in six months. It's mild cognitive impairment. Good luck, right? And so as time was going on, um, in 2011... I had been invited to be a guest lecturer, actually, at the McGill School of Physical and Occupational Therapy to talk to the medical students as a caregiver and to share my story. And it was the first time I had shared my story so publicly. And it was very healing for me to talk to these medical students because I was saying to myself, these are the doctors of the future. These are the students who are going to be sitting in the cl- in, in front of me or people like me, you know, giving me this information. And what ended up happening was by 2017, been spending so much time as a volunteer in the field of dementia education, I decided to become a professional uh, dementia care consultant and educator, which is my private practice, which I have today. But I was still so frustrated by the lack of education in our healthcare system. And I said, well, how are we gonna change this? How are we gonna have an impact on all the families that are going to see their doctors? And I said to myself, we have one of the best medical schools in the world here in Montreal, McGill. I had no affiliation with the university other than being a guest lecturer. My kids didn't go to McGill, I didn't go to McGill, like no affiliation. And I literally knocked on the door of the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences, Dr. David Idleman. And I said, hi, I'm Claire Webster. I'm a dementia care consultant and I wanna come and teach at McGill and change the healthcare system, will you help me? And Would you believe it? He said, yes. Okay, he said yes. Wow,
1: <laughs> I have shivers. Wow, yeah,
2: I'm getting very just. I'm I'm so grateful, and that was it. I mean, you know, at the time we started our program back in 2017 at the uh, Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning. We developed these in-class workshops for family caregivers. So we had, I, you know, McGill gave me their finest healthcare professionals to run the program. So I worked with Dr. Serge Gauthier, who's a world-renowned neurologist, now retired, and Dr. José Moret, who's head of the Division of Geriatric Medicine. So not only did they say yes to me, but they believed in what I wanted to do. So they gave me like these amazing healthcare professionals. However, you know, the program began really as a community outreach initiative, um, you know, which today has grown into one of the most important programs at the university level around the world. You know, we've authored world reports, we have a dementia companion guide, so it's become quite comprehensive. My dream of teaching medical students did happen. So since 2020, I lecture for five classes at the university. Uh, this afternoon after speaking to you, I'm going to talk to the medical students. So, And, and my class has become mandatory. Wow. So I'm really grateful for this this journey that sometimes, you know, life's very difficult challenges can, can change. And I, I feel that the gift of my mother's illness is my ability to give back. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. Wow. The fact that that course has become mandatory speaks volumes clearly to what you've done. And that's fantastic. I I wanted to step back just quickly. You said that your mom was diagnosed immediately with Alzheimer's, but I know sometimes people get told that there's dementia or early onset dementia. What is the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia?
2: So I get asked that question all the time. So really just dementia is the umbrella term. Okay, so it'd be the, it would be like if you said to me you had cancer, and I'll ask you what type of cancer do you have, right? So under the umbrella of dementia, we have Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontal temporal dementia, and early onset. So it's just it's different illnesses which are under that umbrella that will cause dementia.
1: Okay. Okay. So then what are some of the early warning signs of dementia or or Alzheimer's and how can families recognize them? I mean, also, I guess as the process happens, people are also aging. So Typically, let's say an elderly person may forget something which can be normal. What are the differences in the early signs people should look to recognize?
2: Okay, so in general, there are about 10 different warning signs. And yes, you know, there there is normal aging, but dementia is not normal aging. So there's about 10 different warning signs. So one of the warning signs is definitely memory loss, okay, especially short-term memory. So like if you if somebody keeps asking, what time is my appointment, like repetitively, asking the same question over and over again. With dementia, long-term memories tend to stay. So if somebody was especially like learned behaviors such as playing tennis or golf, those were still, but it's the short-term memory that tends to go. Another important sign is really a significant change in behavior. So this is what people don't realize. You know, if all of a sudden somebody starts to suddenly become depressed or anxious all the time. Or, you know, there's a lot of like conspiracy theories, for example, like God behavior where they're convinced that somebody's stealing from them or cheating on them. Or in my mother's case, she was convinced that there were terrorists living next door, right? And she became fixated on that, right? So, and, and that, those, even the conspiracy theories become planted a couple of years even before the person's diagnosed. So you have to pay attention to that. The other thing is you you may notice just a difficulty performing like familiar tasks. So a person who decides, I don't really feel like cooking, like they'll say, well, I don't feel like cooking. And there was somebody that used to cook all the time, right? They'll say, well, I don't feel like it. More and more difficulty, like becoming more lethargic, you know, feeling more isolated, like having more difficulty with, with what we call activities of daily living. So they're wearing the same clothes all the time. They're not putting much attention into their grooming into, you know, showering more frequently. You'll also see changes in their language. So they're forgetting words, like everyday common words. They're having difficulty completing sentences, right? Or they're searching for their words. Or like in my mother's case, because Finnish was her primary language, she kept flipping between speaking Finnish and English, right? So you might start seeing, you know, jarbled sentences. Disorientation. So between time and place, like what day are we waking up suddenly, waking up in the middle of the night thinking, oh, it's time to start my day, but it's only three o'clock in the morning, feeling overwhelmed. So, problems keeping track of things, like you're feeling overwhelmed by things that used to just be so simple, right? If you were managing your finances or doing things. And, and that's where people really have to be careful. Like, one of the warning signs is that you're having more and more difficulty managing your finances, paying bills. You know, we're getting so many of these email scams or phone scams. And it's this, this loss of insight that maybe this is not, you're really getting caught up in these, in these scams, right? You know, you're misplacing things. Okay. So we're all losing things, right? I'm always losing my glasses. I'm always forgetting where my keys are, but it's consistently, you like, you can't, you come out and can't remember where you parked your car. Okay. You know, really constantly losing things all the time. And then, you know, we see withdrawal from like social activities really becoming more and more isolated. You don't feel like seeing your friends. You you're, you know, you don't want to go out to those dinners you used to enjoy. A lot of people say, well, she used to love to, I don't know, go and play bridge with her friends or she used to love to go for the walks and really not doing that anymore. And then and a big part is also understanding what we call visual and spatial information. So, for example dementia doesn't only affect our our cognitive way. So cognition means the way we think, right? It affects our vision. It could affect our hearing and it affects our mobility. So if all of a sudden a person, for example, approaches a set of stairs and says, okay, how do I go up and down these stairs, right? Like not knowing how to navigate stairs or driving becomes a problem because not recognizing red light, green light, yellow light, crosswalk, like all of the reflexes are changing. So, there's, there's so many different pieces that if you bring it all together, I encourage people to go and have person being assessed.
1: Right. And I mean, some of those are, are obviously fairly obvious, you know, to see significant changes. At that point, when you're telling someone, okay, I think you need to get your loved one assessed, obviously it's a very sensitive topic for people. What would you recommend? How can someone approach a loved one that they might suspect has Alzheimer's or dementia? And then after that, what are some of the common barriers to those to, to the diagnosis?
2: Okay. So what people really need to understand is that dementia causes another illness called anosognosia, otherwise known as a loss of insight. So it's very common that the person who is showing the symptoms is completely unaware that there's anything wrong with them. Okay. And this is one of the biggest challenges that families face because you're looking at your spouse or your mother and your father and you're saying, Oh my goodness, I can't believe that what they're doing or saying, but they themselves feel hundred percent fine. Now there are some people who are aware of the changes that are happening to them. Okay. And it does cause them a lot of anxiety or depression because they were perhaps caregivers to their own parents. Right. But People really need to understand that the person displaying the symptoms may very well be unaware. However, it is important to get them to see, I guess the first step would be the family doctor. And the best way to do it is just to kind of, you know, say, I think it's time that we both go or it's time for, for us to go and have our annual physical check If possible, the family member should speak to the doctor before the medical appointment. Okay, because it is uncomfortable to be sitting there like, like what happened to me with my mother and she's in complete denial and she's yelling at me and telling me that everything I'm saying to the doctor is nonsense. Right. So I really encourage families if possible, if you do have a relationship with a family doctor, please send them ahead of time for some of your concerns. Now, why get a diagnosis? Most people say, "Well, well." First of all, unfortunately, dementia is a terminal illness. On its own, it is terminal. So, unless a person has pre-existing health conditions like, you know, heart issues or cancer, diabetes, which could end their life before, if it's just dementia, it is terminal. But it's very important to get a diagnosis because dementia does affect people's moods significantly. And so, a doctor would may be able to prescribe medications to manage some of the the moods. Also, you know, one of the things I'm sure you're going to be asking me is what, the, where, what are we looking at in terms of research? So there are two um, drugs that are, are that are being announced on the market today, which are lecanemab and donanemab. The thing is, they are not cures. I need to really say that these are drugs do not cure dementia, but they do treat it in the sense that if the dementia, and and when I say dementia specifically, they are only specifically for Alzheimer's disease only that's why you need to get an assessment so that the doctor can decide what type of dementia you have. It's for Alzheimer's. It will delay the onset of symptoms. So that means supposing that dementia is a disease that may last anywhere from seven to 12 years, it could delay the onset of symptoms, right? So there is hope. And right now, this unfortunately, these drugs are only available in the United States. They're only approved by the FDA. They're only available uh, through intravenous. There are significant side effects. So the future within the next year or so, I'm, I'm working with Dr. Gauthier, who's very well known, and this was saying that they're working on oral tablets eventually. We still have a ways to go. Health Canada hasn't approved it. But I really feel that the earlier that you receive a diagnosis, it's just you're able to work with your health care team to give you some strategies on how to live the best life possible. The other part that's very important that families need to know is that you must have a diagnosis for the future. So let's say the person does become uh, incapacitated, so they're no longer able to manage their finances or able to manage their legal affairs or anything. In order to have uh, a homologated mandate, there must be uh, a diagnosis by the medical professional.
1: Okay, so clearly there's benefits to getting these early diagnosis done for the family and for the patient. And so what other advice then would you give to someone who's recently received an Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis or to the family member who's just starting on the journey?
2: Well, the first thing I need to say is that it's very important to embrace life, okay? So embrace everything that you still can do, right? And it is not a diagnosis, because a lot of. Times, it, it, I'll be honest to say that, yes, it is, a, it is a disease that people are fearing the most. However, you can still live a very good quality of life with some adaptations, because the disease is one that is always evolving and changing, right? So what I would have to say is, first of all, you need to become as educated as possible on this illness, especially for the family members. Be one step ahead. Know what's coming next because there are three stages of the disease which are early, middle and late. Be prepared because a lot of times when families come to me they say is this normal? why are they doing this? like is this normal? So really understand so that the more that you you understand about the disease then you can adapt your life accordingly, okay? So understand the disease, become as educated as possible. Seek out resources in the community that can support you whether that be not-for-profit organizations that could support you or other organized, for-profit organizations, do your research. Don't wait until a crisis occurs to then go and say, I need help, okay? So the, the best thing you can do, and I would also say that acceptance is key, right? I mean, you know, I think with any illness, right? I mean, I think that it doesn't matter what illness we're talking about. When you stay in a state of denial, you can't move forward to get the care that you need. So if you're going to stay in a state of denial and pretend this isn't happening, well, then how are you going to embrace the life that you have? And so I often say to families, really try to embrace everything the person can still do and stop living in the past. Stop saying, oh, they don't do this anymore. I can't believe they're not doing this anymore. They never used to do this anymore. We as the family members have to adapt to that person. The person who has the illness is not supposed to adapt to us. So embrace
1: what they still can do. Right. and. How would you tell people to to help create a safe and supportive environment for people with Alzheimer's or dementia in their homes? And then, I guess a follow up to that would be, obviously, people want to stay in their house as long as they can. But at what at what point is that just no longer possible?
2: So as the disease progresses, you know, it does impact. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the memory um, and it will impact the person's activities of daily. Life. so their ability to go into the kitchen and and cook or to be able to, having more difficulty for for example, to take a shower, to get dressed, um, navigate stairs. So what we're looking for is that the home be safe. There are certain areas of a home that could become dangerous. So for example, in the kitchen, if the person is cooking and they forget to turn off the stove, okay, or they may put something in the microwave that, sh- that doesn't belong in the microwave, or by accident, press three minutes to heat up something instead of 30 seconds and then burn the hand. So as you're noticing these changes, you don't want to leave a person unsupervised in the kitchen. You want to make it safe, right? Right. Then when we're looking at a person, for example, with the stairs, how are they going up and down the stairs? I mean, falls are are one of the biggest risks with dementia as well. So pay attention to how they're walking. Do you notice that they're starting to shuffle their feet? Meaning, are they not lifting their feet properly? Is there a risk of them falling down the stairs? so So a family may decide, well, maybe the time comes where I shouldn't have their bedroom upstairs anymore, right? And then if they are getting up in the middle of the night and wandering around, you should have night lights in, in the hallways. You should have night lights in the bathroom. Are there shower mats or bath mats outside the shower? So if you want to prevent falls, so all of these things come into play. And then and then the question always becomes: too, can I leave them at home alone? Right? Because it, there's almost a gray zone at some point. Like, are they okay to be at home for an hour? right are they a risk of leaving i mean every week now we hear in the news about a person with with cognitive issues who's gone missing right i mean because it's ever evolving you don't know when the changes are going to happen so you really want to be it, it, i hate to say it but it's almost like you know it's a it's a it's a reversal of age where this person that you're caring for it's almost as if you have to monitor somebody who's who's a young toddler at one point would you leave a toddler alone right so Everybody wants to stay at home as long as possible. Without a doubt, the more the disease progresses, the primary caregiver, okay, the the family member, will need some help. It is absolutely, positively impossible, and I'm gonna say that again, it is impossible for a person to be able to care for a person with dementia on their own. Because as time goes on, the disease evolves from just a cognitive illness into a physical one. The person will need assistance with their bathing, with getting dressed, with going to the bathroom, right, with eating, they will need assistance with everything. And it's not possible for a family caregiver to be able to do all of those things. So you will have to consider home care support at some point. And the person living with dementia will resist it. They'll say, I don't need anybody. Okay. And then at some point, you you also may need to consider transitioning into a residence. And when does that happen? It really happens when the caregiver realizes that they've done everything that they can do, okay? And guilt shouldn't come into play. It really comes down to your role is to provide the best quality of care to the person that you love, and that may no longer be possible to do it at home. We see a lot of older couples caring for older spouses, right? So physically, how exhausted are you? If the person is getting up at night and wandering constantly, Is is it impacting the sleep of the caregiver? Is the person perhaps, unfortunately, you know, dementia could lead to people having aggressive behavior. They could be verbally aggressive or physically aggressive. So it may not be possible anymore for a person to, to be at home, right? So it's really understanding the, the, the caregiver's limitations and what they're able to provide in terms of care. And that may not be possible to do at home anymore.
1: And so what would some of the most difficult, I guess, emotional challenges um, that you've seen with caregivers and people living with dementia face?
2: So those people that are diagnosed with dementia, the, the most common emotions we would see are a lot of anxiety. And depression, and that's where it's important to work with your 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 family doctor or your neurologist or geriatrician, because you don't want that person to stay in a state of anxiety or depression, right? So you really want to make sure that they are assessed and get some medication. Caregivers, however, they go through such a cycle. The one emotion that nobody wants to talk about is anger. I see a lot of anger and that was my biggest emotion. Okay, You're angry that this happened to us. You're angry that how could this have happened to my husband, my wife, my mother or father, right? How could this have happened to me? Because now in my life, I, when I speak to some caregivers, I hear them say to me, I feel like I'm in prison, right? It's such a shock. So there's the anger. Then of course, there's the tremendous sadness, right? So here's this couple in their late 70s or early 70s and now they've planned their retirement and all of that changes, right? Because the person who has dementia may not be able to travel the way they had hoped they would be, right? And then there's a lot of what we call this anticipatory grief. So you're mourning a person who's still alive. And this is where the disease is cruel, because from the moment you receive this diagnosis, you know that life will forever be interrupted, right? So you're first, you're, you're having this unbelievable grief that I can't communicate with the person anymore. You know, I can't share, I, I I couldn't share with my mom anymore about how the kids were doing, or especially for a couple that we just can't, I can't have those dinner time conversations anymore. There's the, it's always the loss, right? The loss of intimacy, the loss of communication. And then you're physically witnessing all the changes that are happening to this person, right? And so it's this constant grief. And then I would say finally, for both the person living with dementia and their care partner, we see a lot of isolation, which is bad. There's a lot of stigma around this illness where people don't want their friends to know. They don't want anybody to know. But it's terrible because that causes stigma. I see a lot of couples hiding the fact that one of their spouses has dementia. They don't want to tell their friends. And so they become isolated. They don't go out anymore. They don't see friends. And that's the worst thing that you can do, okay? Because there's nothing to be ashamed. There isn't. Like dementia is an illness like any other illness. But we have to break that stigma.
1: And how can caregivers then balance their own well-being and self-care while caring for the loved one that's not well?
2: recognize your own limitations honestly it is so easy to, to suffer a burnout i mean which i which i did and 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 i need to say that you know i didn't suffer a burnout just from being a caregiver right because we have so many other things happening in our life it wasn't just about me being a caregiver to my mother i'm i am a wife i am a mother i am a friend i'm a career woman and the, and the world has puts a lot of expectations on me right and so after i was recovering from my burnout i had to do a triage of my life I had to look at my life and say, what's working and what's not working? Who are the friends or colleagues that are adding value to my life? And who are the ones that aren't, right? So the one friend, for example, that would call and say, how come you haven't heard from you this week? You never call me anymore. Or what drama is going on in your life this week? I don't want to have anything to do with that person anymore. And so I think all of us, we need to pick and choose. And so I really did a triage. And I had to say, okay. Uh, even with with regards to family members, sometimes you have to do the same thing. Maybe it's not working to have family dinners. Maybe we should just have lunch because lunch is an hour. Family dinners are four hours, right? Then I also had to look at my own personal commitments and say, you know what? When I was, I was involved in many committees and, and as soon as you get that email reminding you about a meeting, if all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, no. If it's not a hell yes, right? Then get off it, right? So you have to clear your plate. And when I had suffered my burnout, I was just only midstream to the disease, so it was 2011. My mom passed away in 2016, so at the halfway mark, I had to make some changes. And and to this day, I still live my life with surrounding myself with people, places, and commitments that really add value, and learn to say no without apologizing. Okay, like like so we have got to look out for number one, you know, and then the the only other thing I would say is with families is that please set boundaries for yourself. You know, I work where I see, for example, a husband who's been placed, unfortunately, in a residence, and the wife is going seven days a week and spending five hours a day there, you know, where the husband is no longer communicating, right? Or the daughter that feels that she's got to go over every single day and bring the meals for her parents, Right. Please set some boundaries for yourself, okay? And guilt plays no role in this illness, right? Because as the disease progresses, the person who has it realizes less and less. And guilt will, play, will serve no purpose, right? And guilt is, is the thing that prevents us all from, from really moving forward in our own life. So, so give yourselves permission to have a life.
1: Oh gosh, it's so true. And so many things you said, so many things. So with all of that, what are some resources and support networks that caregivers and families dealing with the disease can use?
2: So. You know, I'm first and foremost, we'll talk about the McGill University Dementia Education Program. So all of our resources are free. Uh, You can go to mcgill.ca slash dementia. We've developed a very important dementia companion guide, which can be downloaded for free. It's available in over 10 different languages and many more to come. And printed copies could be uh, um, obtained on by Amazon, and it supports our program. It's only $20. So that's a very important resource, and it was a really multidisciplinary team that put it together. So it was myself, Dr. Gochi, Dr. Moret, School of Physical and Occupational Therapy, McGill School of Social Work, Alzheimer's Society of Canada. So we all came together to really put together this book that's available any time for, for families. And we have some virtual support groups, so please see our, visit our website. You also have the Alzheimer's Society of Canada that has a very good website with all kinds of information. And then I would say for other resources, uh, for caregivers specifically of all types, there's an organization called LAPRI, A P P U I that has all kinds of information resources. And then there's also a NOVA. Uh, there's different, NOVA Montreal, NOVA West Island, So I really encourage people to try to get your resources and your information in order at the beginning. Don't wait until, again, I can't emphasize enough. Please don't wait till a crisis has happened.
1: And I will take the links that you've talked about and I'll put them in the show notes for anyone listening that would like to look into it further. So if I can leave you with one last question, I think a lot of people would wonder, is there anything that we can do to prevent developing dementia?
2: The 2023 World Alzheimer's Disease International Report um, is launching uh, on September 20th. And the whole focus is on what we call modifiable risk factors, okay? And there are 12 of them. So the ones that you can do to try uh, keep or, or keep doing what you're doing, okay? So what's important? Physical activity is so important, okay? Stay as physically active as possible. Quit smoking. I'm going to say that. Quit smoking. Manage your alcohol consumption. Okay. So really try to manage the alcohol. They know that air pollution is a factor and they do know that, for example, there is a direct correlation between head injuries. So, you know, I I feel like there's not enough education about concussions. Okay. You know, with kids and sports. So there is a direct correlation between dementia and head injury, specifically concussions. Also, if you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or any other existing health condition, please Take your medications, okay? Like sometimes we're prescribed medications in our 40s and 50s and we say, oh, I don't need it. You must manage your pre-existing health conditions because there's a direct correlation between the heart and the brain, right? So one of the causes of dementia is cardiovascular illness. So if the doctor's prescribing you blood pressure medications or high cholesterol medications, take your medication. Do not skip on that. The other thing is uh, there is a correlation between diabetes and dementia, so to manage and control the diabetes. Depression, they're looking at links between depression and dementia. You've got to try to manage your weight as much as possible. Hearing, so hearing impairment. So if somebody is having hearing loss or hearing impairment, please go and get fitted with hearing aids. It's very important. And they also see that the more socially active you are, the more engaging you are, it, it, it's really good. Okay. So try to stay as, as socially active as possible with your friends. So I would say all of those things are, are things that we can manage as, as much as possible.
1: Well, I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add to the discussion, but I do have to say it's been educational and I really appreciated your personal touch to everything and having a candid conversation like this is so helpful to people either going through it But even those that aren't going through it, just to learn about it has been very, very eye-opening. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Well, thank
2: you. I mean, I think the one point that I, I forgot to emphasize is how important it is to be prepared for your medical appointment, right? So for those people that are about to get that very first doctor's appointment, you know, I made the mistake of t- going with my mom and thinking, oh, the doctor knows us and he's going to tell us what's going on, right? But it's really about being prepared. So for those people listening who are going for the first appointment, please make sure to arrive with a list of all the medications, all the you know pre-existing health conditions, a list of all the symptoms that you're concerned about, the list of any visual aids or hearing aids or other aids that the person's doing and and be proactive, right? Ask the doctor for next steps, because you need to understand that in most cases you may get 15, 20 minutes in an office if you're lucky, right? So you want to make sure that they answer all of your questions before you leave, but be prepared because in that very moment, it is quite emotional to be sitting there. And, and as I mentioned earlier, if you can even contact the doctor ahead of time with some of your concerns so that you're not speaking in front of your loved one, uh, I would really make that recommendation.
1: Right. No, I think that's very, very good advice. And it's often things we don't think about. People are in a moment of feeling, you know, anxious or stressed about what their family members going through. So we're not usually thinking to be prepared. So I think anything that can be done ahead of time, obviously, would be helpful.
2: Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest on this wonderful podcast. Well, we
1: appreciate it. Thank you. And as I said, I will put all of the links that you mentioned for resources and support for anybody in our show notes. And I wish you continued success with the students that you teach because you're clearly making a very, very positive and important difference in the lives of the doctors to be and the patients that they're going to treat. Well, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to lcc.ca slash podcast. And remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.